0: Your Highness.
1: Oh, oh, the fawn. Yeah. I'm so glad to see you. And my fairy friend.
2: Yeah, that's right. The fawn and the fairy back at it again.
0: That's us. I came here to talk to you about your sick mother. Yeah, yeah, the mom.
1: Oh, I'm so worried about her. I don't know what to do.
0: Uh, don't worry any longer. Because I brought a ritual to heal your mother. A healing
2: ritual?
1: Oh, tell me what I have to do.
0: Uh, well, you have to take this mandrake root. A plant that dreamed of being a human. Okay. Yeah, what a
2: stupid dream, huh?
0: Yeah. (laughs) I
1: guess it kind of looks like a baby. What do I do with it?
0: Well, you put it in a bowl of fresh milk. It's got to be real fresh
1: like Leche Fresca?
0: Exactly, Leche Fresca. And you're going to have to start out by putting three drops of blood in it on the first night. Delicious, delicious blood.
1: Oh, oh, okay.
0: And then every following day, you're going to have to double the quantity that you put in the previous day and using a different bodily fluid every day and you can't repeat.
1: This sounds complicated.
2: No, no, it's super easy. Don't worry about it.
0: Well, you just maybe you start with blood, and then I guess spit's pretty easy, right?
2: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Then, well, I guess you gotta pee in there.
1: What? Easy peasy.
0: Then maybe oh. a, like a maybe like a gallon of poop the next day.
1: Oh my god! Where am I supposed to get that much poop?
0: Well, uh, it's a test. <laughs> Anyway.
1: Where do I put this thing?
0: Well, you gotta put it inside of a
2: human skull.
1: How am I gonna get a human skull?
2: You need a human skull? I can get you a human skull. Don't you worry about it.
1: Oh. Okay.
2: I mean, there's an entire skeleton inside of you right now. (gasps) Hello, dark fantasy fans, and welcome to Scares and Satire, the podcast where we turn spooky low fantasy into terrifying high art. (gasps) Spoopy. I'm your ghoulish (laughs) dungeon master, Jamie Malkal, here with my monstrous co-hosts.
1: I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a stick boy that just wanted to be a fairy.
2: I mean, it's good to dream big.
1: I think if I play my cards right, my fawn master will make me a fairy one day.
2: Wait, a stick boy or a stick bug?
1: I said boy.
2: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just want to make sure we're clear.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I know what I said.
2: All right. (laughs) Very
0: cool. (laughs) (laughs) and me i'm jack olander a fairy woodland gnome glamored to be a soldier in order to guide the the princess on her journey however uh this you know i'm a little distracted by all the fascism not gonna
2: lie yeah it's very distracting
1: It's its own kind of glamour.
0: (laughs) Yike! It's just in your face, you know?
1: I guess so.
2: Just right there. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) How do we come back from this? No.
2: Well, guys, this is our second week of our annual traditional Halloween series of our show. And I've got to say... I am really excited to talk about this week's movie, Pan's Labyrinth. I'm almost as excited to talk about it as I am thankful to all of our patrons who support our show.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, this is the second thing we're recording tonight. The first thing we recorded was the Rewriting History episode that's going to come out this month for our patrons.
2: Ooh, and how could listeners check that out?
1: They could go to patreon.com slash swords and satire and join one of our tiers to gain access to those episodes or uh, the ability to vote on a movie we watch each month. It's pretty cool.
0: Seems like a great deal to me. You hear that? The ability to vote. That's not fascist.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So it's very different from this movie that we watched uh, for this episode. Yeah. Which is not a fascist movie, by the way. I don't think. I think it's the other thing. Yeah. Rebellious? It's anti-fascist. Okay. If only there was a word that meant that. Right. But yeah, so Pan's Labyrinth is a dark fantasy film from 2006, directed by Guillermo del Toro, one of our personal favorites here at Castle Satire.
1: I have another interesting factoid about this movie.
2: It was filmed on cameras.
1: And... In Spanish.
2: Oh, you know, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I was trying to figure out why I didn't understand anything that they were saying.
0: All I heard was leche fresca and my mind repeated it forever.
2: (laughs) I still hear it. It, I can tell. Yeah. But, you know, I've got so much I want to say about this movie. It's very dense with all kinds of great themes and narrative elements and all that stuff. But first, I think Chelsea has prepared an elaborate and concise summary, (laughs) pre-planned, well-prepared, and she's going to share it with you all right now.
1: So, Pan's Labyrinth is a fantasy war movie.
2: I'm so glad that war is just a fantasy. (laughs) I mean, come on. Fascism?
0: They're just objectively the bad guys. It's so stereotypical, right? I know.
1: (laughs) It takes place in Spain in 1944, (laughs) five years after the Civil War, um, in the early Francoist period. So... In this movie there is a regiment of the fascist military
2: <laughs> Francoist.
1: Yeah. Uh led by a the character Captain Vidal.
2: Ooh hiss. Um,
1: and they are set up in an outpost um in the country to root out the Spanish maquis who are freedom fighters who are fighting against the regime the franquist regime meanwhile there's uh the captain's wife carmen and her daughter ophelia or princess moana depending on who you ask
2: yeah i'm going to go with princess moana
1: <laughs> ophelia loves fantasy so
2: so she's one of us yeah she's our people
1: she sees she believes in magic and she, Again, one of us. She sees what others cannot.
2: <laughs> A future free of fascism?
1: And she kind of stumbles upon this prophecy uh, that she's kind of at the center of. And the prophecy is about Princess Moana, who left the underworld years before the fairy realm.
2: And Why would you leave the fairy realm? In, Fuck that.
1: In the lore, the princess came to the human world, but died... And then she was reincarnated as a human. And the king left portals all around the world open for her so she could return home. Sounds
2: pretty standard to me so far. Yeah.
1: And Ophelia finds one of these portals with the help of a fairy friend at the center of a labyrinth that's on this property where they're staying in the country. And there she meets a fawn.
2: Ooh. Is he Pan? No. He's, he's not Pan, everybody.
1: But he is The title
2: a- is a lie. Just like Attor the Fighting Eagle. Oh my god. I love Pan so much. Why isn't he here? Why is he
1: He's like a gatekeeper. And so he's <laughs> <You> fucking
2: gatekeepers.
1: <laughs> he has to test
2: he's Ophelia. He's also kind of a gaslighter.
1: And he has to test Ophelia with three tests to make sure that she didn't become mortal, that she's worthy of returning back to the fairy realm. <laughs>
2: Fucking mortals <laughs> can't have them hanging around.
1: And so she goes through three tests: one with a toad that is killing a fig tree, one dick with move toad. A saggy long boy who hurts children.
2: And what a has dick!
1: A sumptuous feast there to tempt them.
2: Also, content warning: he's like Willy Wonka.
1: Oh God! And a final test of her own metal and morals if she will harm an innocent or not
2: it's a classic um who gets to keep the baby scenario
1: in the end <laughs> this is a pretty brutal story there are characters who die and, brutally yes but there is mercedes who's like the head servant at this household in the country, but she's also a spy. Hell yeah. (laughs) And her brother is the leader of the Spanish Maquis uh, contingent in the area.
2: Platoon? Guerrilla squad?
1: I like guerrilla squad. So... Yeah, they're not so
2: regimented.
1: Yeah. She, along with Dr. Ferrero, helped bring them supplies and the medicine they need. And... um. Bring them news from the outside. And in the end, they.
2: <laughs> news. Shit is uh, not great. Not gonna lie.
1: In the end, the Maquis get reinforcements and they take over the mill. Woo! Which is where the Francoist regiment was holed up. Uh, they take over the mill and they off Captain Vidal.
2: One thing we know from Conan those who control the mill control the games
1: that's right and uh, i forgot to mention that ophelia's mother carmen was pregnant
2: oh i bet that goes well
1: Mm, not so much i mean the baby lives
2: so everything's fine
1: like we said this is a pretty brutal story but yeah that's about it
2: i couldn't have said it better myself i think it's time to head into the delve Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Pan's Labyrinth. Now, guys, one thing I want to establish right off the bat, if this movie teaches us nothing else, it's that the gorillas have got the fascist beat on uniforms. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, The rebels are styling. Yes. We've got sweet neckerchiefs. We've got... Awesome jackets.
1: Stylish shoes.
2: Stylish shoes. Jaunty caps. What do the fascists have? Fucking drab uniforms with medals? Ugh. It's it's uniform. They all look the same. Yeah.
1: There's no personality.
2: But the rebels? They rebel. (laughs) It's true. Whoa.
1: (laughs) They're social, political, and fashionable.
0: Ooh, I love it. Gotta make sure we we enunciate, one of them is fascist and one of them is fashionable. <laughs> that is the dichotomy
2: of this film. Right. Yes. Fascist versus fashion. Del Toro is a genius, guys, for, for unlocking that little theme. But now that we've got that out of the way, let's get deeper into this.
1: Yeah, so this movie explores magical realism.
2: Magical realism? What's that?
1: It's... Kind of the merging of verisimilitude with fantasy.
2: Oh, so you're saying it's just realism. (laughs) Right. Okay, good. (laughs) Now that we have that established.
1: But so one of the biggest questions you're kind of left with is, are the fantastical elements uh, that Ophelia is seeing real? And she's just able to see them because she's a child and she still believes in magic. Or is it all in her imagination?
2: And, of course, the unambiguous answer is all the magical fantasy is real.
1: Right. But let's just entertain the other idea for a little bit.
2: Okay, sure. Why not? Okay. Well, we know that the world
0: is fashion, but we'll play the fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. I mean, the other side of the coin. That's what the metaphor is. Wait a minute.
1: (laughs) Um. So... One one reading of this as figments of Ophelia's imagination is that it could be, you know, she's a child. This could be her way of processing trauma and hardship because this is five years after the Civil War. Her father was a tailor, but he died in the war. So he was probably fighting against the fascist regime.
2: The Francoists.
1: Yeah. And he died in the war. Her mother was alone for that amount of time trying to raise her. So there's the trauma of losing her father. There's the hardships they were going through. And then probably as the child, like the trauma of her mother shacking up with this hard-ass captain that's a, a fascist. Who's a literal fascist. He's very harsh and uncompromising and scary.
2: Yeah, but here's the thing. If this is all just happening in her head, how do you explain the (laughs) fawn, Mr. Smart Guy?
1: Yeah. So (laughs) this could be her way of kind of processing the trauma and the fear of maybe losing her mother. Because her mother, the pregnancy is not going well and she's been sick a lot. And the hardships of living in a country that's being that's torn apart by civil war in the aftermath of that.
2: Yeah, very traumatic uh, experience to live through a literal war.
1: Yeah. And she loves fantasy stories. So it's not a leap to say that she might be living out those fantasies as a way to cope with what's going on around her. A little copium. In a way that's easier for her to understand. Like she's going through her own trials and tribulations in the fantasy world as a form of catharsis right. to kind of recreate the strife that she sees around her in a way that she can understand. Like I said,
2: yeah, there's definitely elements of the film that can make you think like, Oh, what's really going on here. But there's also, I would say some key moments that for me indicate that this is a world of magical realism. One of those elements is the mandrake route. Actually, seeming to have a marked effect on Ophelia's mother's health while its magic is being used. And as soon as Carmen, Ophelia's mother, burns the mandrake root, she basically dies immediately. Compelling ev- evidence that magic is working.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The mom's regressive health after the mandrake burns is pretty good evidence that it is actually magic one scene that shows it could be in her head is toward the end when she is running into the labyrinth to complete the final trial she confronts the fawn and is starting to have a conversation with him and captain vidal is following her close behind and when he comes up into the clearing where ophelia is talking to the fawn Captain Vidal doesn't see the fawn, even though it should be standing right in front of him. He just sees Ophelia talking to nothing.
2: You know grown-ups aren't good at seeing what's really there. That's true. Fucking grown-ups.
0: Also, the fawn is a being of the underworld, so maybe people who aren't of the land of the dead wouldn't be able to see it.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. One thing, though, leading up to that part of the scene, when she's running through the labyrinth, she gets to a dead end and the labyrinth opens up for her so she could go right to the center and then closes back up again and then it shows from the captain's perspective and he was following her and he goes to the dead end and she's not there so she disappears from a dead end
2: right i mean that's a totally normal thing that uh, any regular child can do right (laughs)
1: Yeah, right. Just like a cat.
2: I mean, I was going to say, we have a new kitten, and I swear that she is, like, on the opposite corner of the house, and then suddenly I turn around and she's right behind me. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. She teleports.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I that part I could see just being part of the reality of it.
1: So, see, there's these things that call it into question, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is the fact that pretty much the, the vast majority of the magical things that are happening only happen when ophelia is nearby all the scenes that are centered on adults are very much grounded in reality in what we would think of as reality so you know when say for example she goes to the tree and she meets the very cool frog who is sadly hurting the tree that could just be seen as a scene seen as a scene where a kid goes into a muddy patch under a tree and comes out after having a fantastical adventure in her mind. But nobody's there to witness most of the things that Ophelia does that would be construed as magical.
1: That's true. But when she walks out of the tree, she's holding a golden key.
2: Fair enough. I guess that could also be part of her imagination. Or it could be like a really cool stick.
1: And we're seeing what she sees?
2: Sure. I mean, I think most of the movie we're seeing what, Ophelia sees true but you know even the film changes perspective in that regard that's true because like Jack brought up there's a scene where Vidal does not see the Fawn.
1: right but to that point it could be it's just because they've lost hope in magic because there are two characters that specifically talk to Ophelia about magic right overtly That is Mercedes and Carmen.
2: Right. The two strong female role models in her life.
1: Yes. They both say they used to believe in magic when they were her age, and they lost their faith in magic as they grew up and dealt with the harshness of reality.
2: Especially the harshness of war.
1: And so they're talking about this trauma that they've gone through in their lives, and that's what made them lose. Their belief in magic, their hope. So it's kind of like, to me, I saw it as magic dies when you lose hope in your life.
2: I think it also can represent a loss of hope in humanity. Yeah. Because, I mean, we're talking about the 30s and 40s. We're talking about World War II. Yeah. People are living through some of the most tragic and traumatic experiences of recent history. They're in a country that's going, you know, Spain, we're, we're, our story set in Spain. It's a country that's going through tremendous upheal, upheaval, living through a brutal fascist dictatorship under Franco. All of Europe is basically war-torn at this point. The reality for people like Mercedes and Carmen is that a vast majority of their lives are controlled by other people with aggressive imperialistic designs over everybody around them.
1: And violent behaviors.
2: So, I mean, it is um, understandable that they might lose some of the magical spark in their lives due to that.
1: And so they both directly equate this loss of light and hope with the loss of their belief in magic. So Ophelia has not yet lost that hope in her life. Maybe that's why she still believes in magic. Maybe that's why she's still able to see these things.
2: Boom.
0: Another magical part of the film were stone carvings. Right. Since the labyrinth is part of an old ruin, which is sort of dilapidated and overgrown with time, in the area there are other ruinous monuments that remain.
1: All part of the forest.
0: It's true. In the first scene, we see Ophelia and Carmen coming into the fortress. And on their way through the forest, Carmen is uh, getting sick because of the pregnancy. And when they get out, Ophelia wanders around a little bit and finds an interesting piece of stone with an eye carved on it. And when she picks it up, she finds a carving of... What looks similar to the fawn. Mm -hmm. And she restores the statue by putting the eyepiece back where there isn't an eye. And when she does, that's where the first fairy guide comes out of the mouth.
2: In the form of a stick bug. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just a temporary form.
0: It's true. However, that's not the only statue that appears as such. In the center of the labyrinth, down a spiral stone stairway. Oh very cool. Boy. There is a, what would you call it, a story stone? A glyph?
1: Uh, you could. Not it's a also a carn?
0: Yeah. There's a carving on this stone of a fawn standing over a woman with a baby.
2: Why, that sounds like imagery we're about to see later in the film, that does. It's true. In fact, in the third trial. That foreshadowing that is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I heeded this. Yeah. So
1: she sees that right before the fawn starts talking to her and tells her that that girl in the carving is her and that she's part of a prophecy. Yeah. And that's her first introduction to all of that.
0: Yeah. She was definitely finding things out in that specific storybook kind of order, which is potentially why she could have been making it up as just a tale in her head. We are aware that she is a reader of books and stories like this. We already mentioned it for how she sort of copes with life by reading through her books. When her mom is talking to her about she got her a gift for her birthday, Ophelia's like, a book? And oh. she's like, and the mom is like, what? No, it's better than a book.
2: Yeah, you read too much, kid.
1: You know, one thing is that also on the ride to the country house that the regiment has taken over, she's reading a fantasy book with fairies in it.
2: Yeah. The best kind of book.
1: And it's a folkloric tale about the princess from the underworld.
2: It's true. Yeah. So we're getting a little bit of a labyrinth with David Bowie effect here, where the images that we see in the film are mirrored, like the fantastical images are mirrored in their reality images.
1: So it's possible I get what you're saying, Jack, because it's kinda like it's possible that with her book and the stone structures, she's kind of using these this lore and these symbols to create this narrative in her head. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's wish fulfilment, right? Or yeah. projection. There was a section that I thought was interesting, where Ophelia's in bed with her mother, Carmen, and Carmen asks Ophelia to tell her a story, right? Or to tell the baby, the Mm -hmm. unborn baby, a story to calm him down. Right. Yeah. And Ophelia tells a story of a rose that grows on the top of a mountain, which grants immortality, but has thorns which have grown around the mountain, that have poison which would kill anybody. And how the flower every the day- plastic honeypot. Yes, and how the flower wilts every day because it wasn't able to pass on its gift to anybody. Like it wanted to, but has been unable to. And I wasn't exactly sure what that meant in the context of the film.
1: It's kind of like maybe her hope and her need to believe in magic struggling to survive another day every day. In this harsh reality that she lives in. It's like her heart. The rose is like her heart.
2: I think it's also a little Mm -hmm. bit about kind of dangerous or forbidden knowledge. If you know something that you're not supposed to talk about and you can't share it, such as when you're living under a fascist regime that oppresses literature and knowledge and you are not supposed to talk about certain ideas those ideas can start to wilt and fade because people don't have the ability to share them, to disseminate them
1: Mm -hmm. amongst the masses. Yeah. Well, there is one other thing that could kind of point to this really going on with the magic.
2: Which it totally is, by the
1: way. (laughs) So, remember how in her second trial she had that chalk... To get into the long boy's domain.
2: (laughs) I believe they call him the pale man. I know
0: exactly what you mean. Yes.
1: So she still has a bit of that chalk.
2: That's right. The magical door chalk.
1: Yeah, if you draw it on the wall or anywhere, it creates a door. Um,
2: Do not draw it on your friend's back. It's weird.
1: Yeah, this isn't lock and key. (laughs) Oh,
2: Um,
1: God. So near the end... She and Mercedes are caught because they were trying to escape, and Captain Vidal imprisons both of them separately, and he has her locked in her room with guards standing outside, and that's the only exit. She uses the chalk to create a door and gets out of a locked and guarded room, and she walks about the house and gets out and gets her brother and then gets out... To the labyrinth.
2: So you're telling me that either this is a magical world or this little girl is the greatest rogue of all time? Occam's razor says magic is real.
1: Yeah, but later when the freedom fighters, the Marquis, or Marquise, and Mercedes fight their way onto the grounds and through the house, they've dispatched of the guards, they get into the room, the only doorway. She's nowhere in the room, and there's the chalk outline of the door that she drew, and she's nowhere to be found in there.
2: Case closed.
1: They have to follow her into the labyrinth to find her, where she's been shot by Captain Vidal.
2: Content warning. (laughs) Yes.
1: So, yeah. Um, So magic's real. I think it's... I think it's really going on, and I'm, we're on the side of the director here, so...
0: Also, Ophelia isn't the storyteller. The fawn. The fawn is.
2: It's the fawn. I was going to mention that, too. Holy the fawn is our narrator.
1: I fucking forgot about that. Boom. Right there. Yeah.
2: And so, what? Chelsea, <laughs> Chelsea also just alluded to the fact that Guillermo del Toro has said that this movie is, you know, up to interpretation... But his interpretation is that the magic is real. Now, we don't always take the filmmakers' answers to everything. But in this case, we're on the side of (laughs) right. Or he's on the side of right. However you want to frame it.
1: I think the locked room and disappearing from a dead end are pretty strong indicators that there's something else going on here. And the
2: mandrake! Because we
1: see those things happening from other people's perspective.
0: And the last thing we see in the movie is the dead tree that she saved starting to blossom again.
1: That's right. And that is the spark of hope coming back into the land.
2: That's right. Once these fucking fascists have been knocked out.
1: I kind of took that as a symbol that, and it's kind of throughout the whole movie, but like the forests are these places of old magic.
2: Yes. Pagan power.
1: And it's like. The old magic of nature will endure and persist beyond war and strife.
2: Right. These things are older than the foolish humans who would try to control them.
1: So like in The Green Knight, it is the green that persists.
2: (laughs) Swamp Thing approves.
1: It's what remains.
2: (laughs) So as I just alluded to, a great deal of this movie has to do with oppression and control.
1: And then resistance to such.
2: And then resistance to such. One of my absolute favorite things in the world. But first, (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about Captain Vidal and his obsessive control of every aspect of his life.
1: You know what, Jamie? This sounds a little bit like class struggle.
2: It is. And I'm glad you mentioned it. Whoa, where is that theme music coming from? So our primary antagonist of this film, Captain Vidal, has all the trappings of a terrified man who is clinging to the little bits of power and control that he has because of his fear. Yes. We basically know a bit of his backstory, that his father was a general who was killed by rebels and who... Like, smashed his watch to, like, tell his son what time he died. This dramatic, kind of fantastical story, right? This this origin story.
1: Right. It's a little bit like folklore. Right. And he also said something about, and to tell my son that, Uh, this is the way a true man dies or something like that.
2: Yeah, some patriarchal nonsense like that. Yeah. But he also denies that story about his father, despite the fact that he has the broken pocket watch.
1: Yeah, that he's obsessed about fixing.
2: Yeah, and so we have these scenes of him fixing the clock. He's trying to repair the past, what was broken. He's trying to control everything. We see, like, especially in the scene with the storehouse, where he wants the only copy of the key.
1: And he's also obsessed about timekeeping, yeah, and being punctual.
2: Yeah, every he's he's upset at the very beginning of the movie that Carmen's carav- uh, caravan car is late. Well, the reason Carmen's car is late is because she's probably literally dying from a complications of, of childbirth that are about to on you know onset. She has some kind of sickness or some complication that is killing her. During the pregnancy. Yeah. But all he's concerned about is, oh, they're 15 minutes late. Like, driving into the woods. Like, you'd be sitting there, like, timing how long it would take to go through rutted lanes and potholes and stuff. He (laughs) wants to control this only copy of the key. He wants to control everything. He's a fascist. Yeah. It's all about control, right?
1: He's also a very violent person. And... It's hard to say if that comes from a place of fear or anger because it's possible because it could have been so warped at this stage of his life, like having lived in fear and anger for so long, because he seems so calm whenever he's committing violence and almost like he enjoys it.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's agitated most of the time, except for when he's doing horrendous things to people. Which we won't go into detail on, but needless to say, this movie has some rather shocking images of violence.
1: Yeah, I couldn't even... I I turned away and closed my ears, plugged up my ears.
0: (laughs) Most of the time, he has the very stern look of someone who is aggressively in charge with his uniform and his hat. But when he is about to start doing those bad things, he takes off his coat lowers his suspenders rolls up his, his hair sleeves. down yeah he does he
1: gets comfy
0: yeah he which starts
2: is gross <laughs> he starts smiling and laughing joking around i mean it creates a horrifying yet compelling image of a villain
1: yes it's yeah. very scary
0: that 30 minute scene of him putting on joker makeup <laughs>
2: Oh, my God. Uh, That's the wrong side of the Resistance.
0: Oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) You're so right.
1: We do live in a society, though.
0: Whoa.
2: Now, of course, this whole story is framed within the context of, as Chelsea pointed out, a class conflict with the guerrillas who are being starved by Vidal's troops. Vidal is basically waging a propaganda and starvation campaign against the guerrillas. So,
1: yeah, they are a contingent of a resistance movement. Right. And they, in particular, want to root them out of this area. Why? To understand that, I mean, you might want to know, you you could know the history, which I barely do. Or you could think about what happens in the text of the film. So where... Have they seized control over? The mill. Exactly.
2: That's where you make bread. And in Franco's Spain, you have your daily bread. That is one of the propagandistic chants of Vidal's men.
1: And so this is a symbol of the wider regime's seizing of the means of production from the common man.
2: Exactly. Thank you.
1: Yes. So they're controlling the resources. They take resources from storehouses from all over the region and store them at the mill.
2: And then take credit for having those resources. Mm -hmm. Also, Spain was a
0: Catholic country for hundreds of years. That's true. And daily bread is a very common thing in Catholicism. So uh, he's calling himself God. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, divine. Yeah.
2: Right? He, he's attributing a religious significance to their quote unquote ability to feed the population. Yeah. But what is really happening is that they are creating rations to starve the population so that those farmers and local hunters and stuff cannot give any food to the rebels. Because they
1: barely have enough they to feed their family,
2: barely have enough to feed themselves. So there's this propaganda campaign look, we're giving you food, it's not enough to sustain you, it's literally just bread. And we have a scene early in the film where Vidal kills a hunter and his son, his son for, I mean trespassing, basically, for being communist, kind of, but it's kind of just because he can get away with it. And then he finds out that they really were just hunting.
1: Well, so he's called out from his room where he's cleaning his little watch or something. It was his... That's
2: exactly, literally, what is happening.
1: (laughs) It was his soldiers that captured those two because they suspected them of being sympathetic to the maquis. Uh, communists, yeah. And they were saying we were just hunting rabbits for our family. They found some propaganda of the communist group in their bag.
2: Yeah, which they say is just like old pamphlets.
1: Yeah, which was probably true.
2: I mean, to some extent, sure.
1: (laughs) But they basically were nervous and trying to explain themselves. Vidal took that as talking back and committed violence against them. and. Turns out there were rabbits in there. And he tells his uh, soldiers to properly search people before bothering him. So it's almost like he was annoyed?
2: Yeah. Oh, you made me come out here and murder these innocent people. What a hassle for my day. I was cleaning my stupid little watch.
1: Yeah. So he's a bad guy, just in case you couldn't tell.
2: And the movie frames it very uh, poignantly.
1: Yeah. Uh, But so he figured they were probably just common peasants and hunters. But he killed them to make a point because they were trying to find a means outside of the regime to find sustenance. They were trying to go to an ancient human practice. Yeah. To sustain themselves.
2: Taking control away from the Francoist regime.
1: So, I think it was partly about that too.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: So, I would like to frame the next part of our discussion about class struggle through Ophelia's lens and her trials that she goes through. Because I think that you can compare the trials to things that are going on around her and the class struggle around her. So, in her first trial, she has to.
2: Beat up a greedy frog.
1: (laughs) Yeah, defeat a toad that's just greedily eating up all of the insects that are under this tree, killing this tree that can produce food. It's a fig tree. So
2: Nobody ever thinks of the poor greedy frogs who are just trying to steal all the food from the tree?
1: The frog, Mm -hmm. the fat the frog getting fat and despoiling the goods of the earth? Is kind of like a symbol for the fascist regime, the Francoist regime, seizing control of the natural resources and bleeding them dry and taking them away from other people. Nobody right. else can enjoy the fruit of this tree because the frog is making it so that it can't produce.
2: Exactly. That frog's a real dick. <laughs>
1: And in her second trial, there's the long boy, or what do they call it? The pale Man. The Pale Man. Played
2: by Swords and Satire favorite Doug Jones. True. He's who's a, appeared in many of our favorite films. He's a
1: great creature actor. And some of our not-favorite films. I guess you'd call him a creature I,
2: actor? I think that's a great... He is, like...
1: So what else... Who else has he played?
2: So he played the Ice Cream Man in Legion. Yeah. Maybe not one of our favorite movies, but certainly uh, an interesting one. Yeah. And he plays Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies, also by Guillermo del Toro. And of course, that means he plays the fishman in The Shape of Water. And everyone knows that the fish man fucks.
1: Yeah, it's true.
2: Painfully aware of the fact.
1: <laughs> Hopefully the pale man does not.
2: God, I hope not. I mean, he doesn't have any junk. True. And, you know, uh, we just found out that Doug Jones is also one of the gentlemen in Buffy. So that's fun.
1: That's cool. So, when she confronts him, he's in a lavish, but decaying palace. And he has this lavish banquet set out before him. Delicious.
2: I'm just going to eat one of these grapes real quick, guys. Don't mind me. (laughs) Oh, what's that?
1: And he harms children.
2: (laughs) Trigger warning. Leave it at that.
1: And... This is juxtaposed with the real world scene in which uh, other generals and rich uh, couples from the area come to a dinner party at the mill that the captain is hosting. And they're talking about how the communists are vermin and they all need to be killed, basically.
2: The classic technique used by oppressors to
0: dehumanize
2: dehumanize the people that they are
0: oppressing Mm -hmm. and you might not know this but children are often shorthand uh depictions of innocence oh wow interesting point
2: i didn't consider that
0: so killing innocence oh
2: i see Mm -hmm. where you're going yeah yes oppression that's right To some extent, children are, like, the ultimate underclass, too.
0: Yes. Also, we were talking about how most of the citizens are only being given bread to sustain themselves, while the pale man who represents the fascists has an entire banquet in front of him.
1: And they're eating a lavish banquet also, the centerpiece of which are the rabbits that they stole from the two hunters that they killed.
2: Boom. The rabbits, by the way, which are pointed out to be, like, basically meatless. (laughs) I mean, like, they're just very skinny and and malnourished rabbits to begin with. They say, like, they're barely fit to be cooked.
1: Yeah, but they cook them just to show off their dominion and power over people.
2: Right, exactly. It's just cruelty at that point.
1: So... They're compared to the Pale Man.
2: And Not the rabbits.
1: No, no, the the fascists and the rich people that support them. Right. So the Pale Man is kind of like the ruling class who takes everything for themselves at the expense of the people and the children who live under them, right. basically, or at their whims. And something that's interesting is Ophelia is warned by the fawn not to eat anything because it would be dangerous for her. It would it's the matter of life and death.
2: Classic fairy tale story.
1: Yes. But also in our symbolism here, that's what wakes up the pale man. So it's like any time someone of the lower classes tries to grasp for anything that is owned by the ruling class, they are shot down for it. Literally. Yeah.
2: And, I mean, Ophelia says to the fawn when explaining what happened, it was just a couple of grapes.
1: But what's interesting, too, is for much of history, grapes were a delicacy, a lavish decadence that the ruling classes would enjoy. So somebody like Ophelia would not often be able to have access to something like that. Right. And that's what tempts her.
2: Yeah. But, I mean, this is just like, um, you know, discussions of... Oh, fantastical things like say a living minimum wage? Mm. You know, we can't possibly give that to the lower classes. That would be cutting into our profits, says the pale men. I mean, <laughs> the ruling class. Right. And we will kill you if you try to take anything more than we give. We did and- nothing. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is basically uh, glad this is fantasy, right?
1: Oh god. This is basically the types of things that you're saying Jamie that they're talking about at the captain's dinner.
2: Right, exactly.
1: And they're laughing about it. Yeah. And
2: gloating. <laughs> oh, we're such good fascists.
1: They're gloating about keeping things for themselves and just screwing over everybody else. Yeah, fuck they d- the poor. They don't care. They only care that, about keeping what's theirs and then taking more. But then in the third trial, Ophelia's personal character is tested. Yes, it is. And this idea of innocence comes up again.
0: Oh, Jack mentioned that. He did. I mentioned that.
1: So the fawn says that she needs the blood of the innocent to open the portal.
2: Right. and it's it, the only way she can get back to her rightful kingdom.
1: In her, the second trial, she retrieved a blade from the Pale Man's Realm. He tells her to use the blade, and he says she only has to, like, get a little bit of blood. She doesn't really have to seriously harm the infant. But even getting a few drops of blood from him, she refuses to harm him in any way. And he says that she'll be trapped in the human realm as a mortal if she doesn't do it.
2: I believe he says you'll be trapped in the stupid human (laughs) realm as a dumb Useless mortal for all of time, which for you will not be very much time because you will be mortal and useless. Those are his exact words. My like mistake. Translated from the original Spanish.
1: Yeah, you're right. My mistake. But, uh, yes, yeah, so Oh, she- God, can
2: you guys imagine being mortal? <laughs>
1: <laughs> she refuses to spill the blood of an innocent. And she is part of the working class. Her father was a tailor. And her mother. And a rebel. Her mother actually continued his work. She was probably a seamstress.
2: Yes, she makes Ophelia the dress mm-hmm. that uh, Ophelia totally destroys. Actually, I think the fairies destroy it. I blame the fairies. I
1: think Mischievous it was probably little buddies. Them. But so, not always the case, but often it will be people who are struggling who will show charity to others who are struggling or are in a, a, a worse scenario than they are. Truth. And so it's kind of a symbol of her class that she refuses to harm the baby. They are, it's a show of solidarity with somebody else that's like her.
2: Right. And the symbolism of the movie is that this concept of nobility that is usually ascribed to those of the, quote, upper classes is actually a trait for the innocent, people like Ophelia, who are maybe in a rough circumstance. But don't let that pull them down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because we, like, in the framing of the movie, Ophelia is this lost princess of this fae realm. And so she is actually, as somebody who is charitable or protective of the innocent, Right. that's what makes her noble. Not necessarily a birthright,
1: and in the but end, a
2: behavior set.
1: Her sacrifice to save the child, in the end, is what the fawn says when she goes to the fairy realm is what the Fawn says is what actually helped her pass the test. She wasn't supposed to harm him. That's what made her worthy. And it's kind of like the Maquis, or the Maquis, too. They're defenders of the common man, the common people. So they're portrayed as noble as well. And it's their sacrifice to help others that makes them noble. So they and Ophelia are linked in the symbolism.
2: Absolutely. But I do want to point out that the movie doesn't totally portray even characters that I think we're supposed to sympathize more with or less with, does not portray them as fully good or fully bad all the time. Okay. And something that stands out to me as an example of that, that's always stuck with me ever since the first time I saw this movie, is the scene where Ophelia is explaining to the fawn that she ate some of the grapes. From the Pale Man. And the fawn lashes out. He becomes very angry. He's yelling at her. He's basically verbally abusing her. Much like Vidal would. Mm-hmm. He's juxtaposed with Vidal in in a way that kind of makes the fawn look kind of like a jerk. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, not that the fawn is wrong necessarily, but also not totally right. Like, she's a hungry kid. She's not getting... Proper nutrition, her mother like punishes her by not you know having dinner in in one scene when she like comes back to the dinner party with the ruined dress. Ophelia's not getting the support and the love and the care she needs, and the fawn is lashing out at her for basically making a child's mistake, right for like giving in to hunger.
0: He was basically treating it like it was an automatic fail for the test. Exactly. And was uh, I think he was upset because he was conveying that she doomed herself, right? Right. He dealt with it in anger. But uh, you could say from his perspective, all hope had just been lost by that gesture. Totally.
1: His fate is intertwined with hers. Yes, he explains
2: that if something happens to her, she's done, right? He's dead. If
1: she doesn't pass all the tests and get back to the underworld, he will fade and die out. Bummer. Or he can go back to the underworld and live on, as she would be able to. So their fates
2: are linked.
0: Which don't worry, he does. They pal around in the
2: afterlife. Oh yeah, yeah. they're like best buds after that. Yeah. yeah, but I, you know, it's just interesting that we are seeing that
1: her mother he's is not also all
2: good. Dead. He's Mm -hmm. not all bad. Mm. Even Vidal, very, very bad dude. Again, fucking fascist. But we get a lot of scenes with him that humanize him. Even if we're seeing him being kind of a sociopath in a lot of scenes, we also see just scenes of him shaving. We see him, like, cleaning his uniform. We see a lot of his perspective. And I think that that inherently makes... You know, a lot of villains in movies don't get a lot of screen time to keep them mysterious. Vidal is not a mysterious villain. He is a very present villain that we see throughout the film, almost as much as any other character.
1: The picture you're painting is a very poignant one because what this says is that he is portrayed as essentially human. exactly, Which makes the actions he does all the more terrifying.
2: Absolutely. Seeing him act in ways that we could define as... Literally being monstrous. Yeah. Worse than, or comparable to someone like the Pale Man.
1: Yes. And then he's shaving his face.
2: Yeah. Then we're just seeing him shaving, fixing his little fucking clock.
1: Having his morning coffee.
2: Yeah. Like, it's a very humanizing portrayal that makes it hard to 100% despise him. Even if you should 100% despise him, we get his backstory. We know... What happened to his father in his childhood? Mm-hmm. We
0: also get a really great reaction from him that sort of breaks his imperial stiff nature. When he finds the mandrake <laughs> in the bowl of milk.
2: It's true. He's so
0: uncomfortable.
2: <laughs> yeah. It- this part was, we were pointing this out. I never really put this together before.
1: It you could almost see if he was a different person in a different time and not a fucking psychopath, it could have been just like your average like stepfather moment where you're like, what is going on with this kid? Like,
0: <laughs> It's true. He just he, his entire facade falls away. As he's just like, what the fuck? What is this? No. She's like, no, oh, that's my spell. He's just like, a spell?
2: What the hell? He does that- the total classic stepfather move of, let your mother handle it. I'm out of here.
1: Well, in a, way, in a way, let's describe how that happens. Because like, like Jack's saying, he's kind of like, Ophelia, what's going on
2: here? Yeah. He's shook. <laughs> okay. Ophelia. what's this just call it. He's it
1: holding in. it and she's like, no, leave it alone. Her mom wakes up and is like, please don't hurt her. And he's like, look at what she put under you. And the mom's like horrified and disgusted.
0: And
1: he's like, what is this thing? And he puts it in the mom's hands, and she's like,
0: Ophelia, what are you doing with this? The first thing he does when he interacts with it is smell it. And he, let, <laughs> he recoils in disgust,
2: it's like spoiled. I mean, it's sitting in milk, blood, milk, blood, blood. and dirt, and, and it's, it's a fucking magical like monster plant baby. Yeah, yeah. In like, my mind. It was Vidal who had burned it. Like in every like every other watching of this movie I've done, I always remember it being Vidal. I didn't remember him giving it to Carmen and being like, you deal with this. This is literally the one time that he cedes control to somebody else.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about that because she asked, she's asking Ophelia what it is and Ophelia is trying to explain to her that it's supposed to help her and it's a spell and everything. And as they're talking... Vidal is slowly backing away. (laughs) (laughs) And then when Carmen just looks at him and is like, maybe you should let me talk to her. He's just like, fine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Again, the one time in the movie where Vidal cedes control to somebody else. Like, basically at all.
1: He basically lets her tell him what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This
2: guy whose whole thing has been utter control well Ophelia mind broke him <laughs> but I think part of the symbolism of that scene is as much as he wants this facade of control magic is beyond control right his ken. yeah it, it, to, like, to him mag- it's the same reason he can't see the fawn he can't even comprehend magic so he can't really see it and his everything breaks down when he's confronted with it
1: and also in this scene when Carmen throws the mandrake into the fire and Ophelia is wailing in despair and saying, no, no. Carmen wheels on her daughter and shouts that magic doesn't exist. And she Denial.
2: Someone is in denial. And
1: she talks about how she used to believe in magic, but that the world has beaten her down and Ophelia has to grow up and understand that too. And it's just clear that the mom, it's really the mom who has
2: lost all hope.
1: And she gave in. I mean, think about what she did. Her husband was a freedom fighter. She fucking married a fascist.
2: Yeah. Not a good look.
1: Just because she didn't want to be alone anymore. Yeah. But she wasn't alone. She had her daughter.
2: No, it's very sad.
1: So, her mom gave up.
2: Yeah. And, um, you know... After this scene, when she has denied magic, she, unfortunately, sadly, dies during childbirth. Yeah. In another scene that slightly humanizes Vidal, because we're not seeing it from the inside of the bedchamber or the medical room, we are seeing Vidal and Ophelia sitting next to each other, like, heads in hand. Like, looking like two people who are about to lose a loved one. Mhm. Now, I say slightly humanizes him. Part of like Vidal's not really upset about losing his wife. He's upset because he is sure that Carmen is pregnant with his son and he is obsessed with this idea of passing on his patriarchal lineage to a son. Yeah. There's a scene early in the film
0: where he is speaking to the doctor. And he says, if you have to choose between my wife and my son, save my son. And the doctor says, how are you so sure that your child is a male? And Vidal just laughs and goes, huh, don't fuck with me. Yes, I he know. literally says, don't fuck with me.
1: And the me. doctor just kind of stares at him in horror. <laughs> yeah.
2: Again, Vidal is a very bad guy, but the film goes out of its way to frame him in a more sympathetic light than we often get villains in. And I think that's one of the strengths of this movie.
1: It is, because that is part of the verisimilitude of this film. Because the people committing these monstrous acts in our reality, are they're human. Right. It's part of human nature to be capable of these things. And most people are able to resist it or don't feel the impulse but those who do can cause great harm and highlighting that is part of what makes a great horror movie and a great villain
2: absolutely
1: and it's such compelling storytelling because that is part of the fear that we live with in our daily lives is like there are people that could just do this to us it could be a loved one right yeah
2: it's an ever-present fear in in people's lives it's
1: dark but there is hope in magic And in the people that resist those types of evil dudes.
2: And one of those people who I don't want to move on without talking about a little bit more, because we have not given them as much time as they deserve, is Mercedes.
1: I figure you're going to say her.
2: Awesome character. There's no way we were moving on without talking about Mercedes, because she's a badass. Yeah. She deserves some, some discussion. Serious badass. Yeah.
1: She... ...is in one of the most precarious positions besides maybe the doctor.
2: Yes. The doctor, yeah. The doctor is worse off than you would think the guy who is the best medical practitioner in the camp would be.
1: Although she takes more risks and is in more danger than he is.
2: Absolutely. Not just because of the acts she's doing, but as a female person. Right.
1: I was going to say, as a woman or female person, and uh, because of her station. He's a doctor. He gets a little bit more leeway. He can talk back to Vidal a bit. Yes. He's got a little bit more wiggle room than she does. She can never let on what her true intentions are, or she's just fucked. Exactly. She has no rights. She has to just be around Vidal and take all of his shit and act like... It's what she wants to hear.
2: Yep. I do want to point out some other characters who I really love are the, the women who work in the kitchen. Oh, yes. Who are able to just completely disregard the characters like Vidal and just talk shit all they want because they are literally invisible to, like, the men of the, the camp. Because they're in the kitchen, the men don't even come into those rooms, so they can talk shit all day, and like, I love it. I I would watch an entire movie that's just the kitchen staff just gossiping and shit-talking the soldiers all day. (laughs) in a way,
1: their extreme low status kind of gives them a little bit of a safety net. Right. It's kind of like a cloak around them.
2: But Mercedes has to interact with the soldiers, and that's why her position is very dangerous.
1: Yeah. Well, also because she's a spy.
2: <laughs> That's yeah. a, so Little she's, things.
1: She's bringing letters to the, uh, the resistance fighters from their families because they are all people who live in the region or used to, and they're hiding out in caves. Yeah. She also brings them supplies.
2: Medicine, antibiotics.
1: And the doctor goes out of his way to give her those supplies or go with her, but he doesn't take those risks as often as she does. And she takes the risks to learn intelligence by lingering when she's bringing the soldiers, um, when they're having, like, war meetings, um, their coffee or their, you know, their food. She's basically invisible to them as well.
2: She's a fly on the wall.
1: And she just carefully looks at their maps and listens to their conversation, all the while making it seem like she's doing her job and putting uh, the dishes out for them and everything. And that's a risk, too, that somebody could notice.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
1: But, I mean, she has family among the Resistance fighters. Her brother. And she cares about all of them. Yeah. And they're the symbol of hope for the common person. And she is a badass, like we said. Yeah. I mean...
2: she's one of the characters who actually physically resists Vidal later in the film.
1: Yeah, he... Once it's clear that she's a spy because she and Ophelia were trying to escape, like we mentioned before, they're caught. So we said what happened to Ophelia? Mercedes is imprisoned in the storeroom that's been emptied out.
2: And we've already seen in a previous scene, one of the resistance fighters effectively tortured to death in this room. Right. So that is what we are expecting is going to happen to Mercedes.
1: But something that's been established throughout the whole movie is that as she's cutting up vegetables... She rolls up a knife in her apron.
2: as Chekhov's knife.
1: To like hold it there. And then she unrolls it when she needs it. It's kind of like her uh, sheath for it. Yeah. And um, her hands are tied in front of her. Rookie mistake. So, (laughs) (laughs) on Vidal's part.
2: Because he underestimates her for being a woman.
1: And before they have a confrontation, she tells him that. She says, I was able to get away with everything I did. Because I'm a woman, and you underestimated me, and I was invisible to you.
2: Yeah. And She just tells him the themes of the movie right in his fucking face.
1: So, Mm -hmm. your misogyny is what was your downfall.
2: Yeah. And she gets him real good with that knife.
1: Yep. She's able to free herself and defend herself with the knife against him and harm him and get away.
2: Now, of course, she can't finish the job because that would, you know, spoil the the tension of the rest of the movie.
1: Right. Well, she's also freaking out. <laughs> yeah, sure.
0: I think there was also some worry that he would be replaced with someone better at his job. Very possibly. They acknowledge that at some point in the film, like, why don't we just kill him? Well, he would be replaced in a week.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good point. And that is the grim reality of living under fascist regimes, is that one leader at the local level isn't going to make a huge difference. It's, you know, there's going to, of course, be variation in people's lives, depending on who's in charge. But to some degree, there is a comfort in living with the evil that, you know. So Mercedes it fit to just damage him heavily. <laughs> yes. He took some slashing damage and some psychic damage. Yeah. So I think she's, One of the, you know, most important characters in the movie in in a lot of ways. Yeah. To some extent, we could view her as an alternate or even future version of Ophelia. Ophelia is going, you know, if she wasn't going to ascend to princesshood in the Fey realm. Right. She could grow up to be somebody like Mercedes, who was a very badass protector of the people doing, you know, what is necessary to help resistances in her area. Yeah. They bonded very quickly. and Yeah, exactly. They have this really strong relationship. Mercedes takes this motherly role to Ophelia that Carmen's not really able to fulfill anymore. Nope.
1: Yeah, she's so focused on her relationship with the captain and her new baby.
2: Yeah. yeah. So Mercedes fills this really important role of representing feminine power, power to Ophelia. Yeah. Like, you don't have to, you know, Ophelia doesn't seem like the type who is prone to just following orders, of course, but Carmen has kind of let herself fall into that trap of comfort. Mercedes represents how discomfort can also represent growth.
1: And uh, she and Ophelia protect one another. Yeah. Ophelia learns that she's a spy and she doesn't tell anyone. She says, I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Yeah. Yeah. And Mercedes protects her when she gets in trouble and she comforts her. And uh, when Carmen dies in childbirth, Mercedes is taking Ophelia with her so that nothing bad happens to her. And she's going to basically adopt her almost. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Even if it's going to be part of like a communal raising amongst the gorillas or whatever. Right. She's taking responsibility for her. Yeah. This child who doesn't really have anybody else. Yeah. So three cheers for Mercedes, one of the true heroes of the film.
1: Agreed.
2: Yes. And I feel like I could talk about this movie for hours and hours. But it's probably time to head into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, would you like to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 magical chalk pieces? (laughs) There's one scene we didn't get around to mentioning
0: that I have to highlight. Since we gave the fawn his due, we gave the fawn his credit, I'll give the epic scene to when Ophelia is actually talking to that there toad in that there mud tunnel.
1: All right. (laughs) Yeah. The secret tunnel.
0: The secret tunnel. That's right. Uh, through the earth. Yes. Well, she's in the mud tunnel, right? (laughs) and she she's crawling around there's the bugs everywhere yeah she's been given three carnelian stones or just like three magical stones yeah the fawn is like take the rocks put them in the frog and take the key out of the frog or the toad yeah and she's just like what the fuck are you saying and then she has to go do it right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so she's just crawling under the tree, and there's just this big toad, and she starts panicking.
2: <laughs> like anyone like would. Because
0: <laughs> this toad is as big as she is in the current position they are in. It's this thick thing, like, I don't yeah. know, hog sized.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. it's just the sort of thing where anyone would start to panic if that showed up in front of them. Mm -hmm. It's just like, right? And she's (laughs) like, oh, what is that? (laughs) And it like licks her with its tongue. And uh, the thing I, uh, the actual epic part of that scene is where she tries to shame the toad into changing (laughs) its course of action. I love that too. It's like, don't you know you're killing the tree? Come on, man, cut it out. But it's a toad, and it doesn't understand.
1: Yeah, she says, aren't aren't you ashamed sitting under this tree just getting fat and harming it?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what she says. I mean, a little fat-shamey, but... Yeah,
1: well... Oh, well. Yes. But it's It's okay because it's a symbol of the fascist regime.
0: Right, the fat cats. Right. Yes. And depending on who you ask, it's okay to shame fascism. So, so I just thought that was a hype thing for her to say, to just go up to this monster and try to shame it into changing its behavior. Overall, though, I have to give this a rating. I'll tell you this. The fantasy parts are just the best. Really, every, every fantasy scene is an epic moment in its own right. Mm -hmm. The fascist... Political parts of the film are very good, but very hard to watch. Yes. That's fair. And uh I think it did everything pretty much exactly how it was meant to. The film is very intentional. Yes. Everything serves its purpose. So I don't think it dallied any time. So I'm probably going to give this film an 8 out of 10 swords. I would have given it... It gets a 10 out of 10 as far as it is exactly what it wants to be. Sure. And it did it perfectly. But this is a subjective rating. And but it is this is art. <laughs> subjective, because there were certain scenes that were long, which were hard for me to endure through. And there were certain parts of the film that... I could have used a little more fantasy in. That's fair. Just because the tone needed the fantasy to break it up, not just for Ophelia's mental health, but for my viewers' mental health. (laughs) Yeah. So as an art piece, I think it's flawless. But as a viewer, it was a little rough. So I'm going to say eight out of 10, great movie. Seen it thrice, I'd see it thrice more. And more still, I like it a lot.
2: There we go. That's a good rating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Chelsea. How about you? What's your epic moment or feature, and then a rating from one to ten magical chalk pieces. Oh.
1: So I have an epic feature, and it's the labyrinth.
2: Ooh. And Ooh.
1: specifically, Anne's labyrinth. the center, which <laughs> is this pit that goes down into the earth. Very obvious, like the power of nature is in the earth. Right. And uh she goes down this cool spiral staircase and there's like a spiral labyrinth around the central cairnstone that's all carved with this story, and there's like roots from the trees that are going down. So it's a beautiful set, and it's kind of like damp and very verdant mm-hmm. and alive. A and second Yes, and the fawn is actually part of... If you notice as she's walking down, you can see that he is part of the wall. Oh,
2: I love that. Yeah.
1: He's like a living part of the root system that is coming down
2: into this
1: place of power. And he mentions that he's like... He almost describes himself kind of like a genus loci or loci. Yeah. Where he... Is like the personality of the place. Yes. And he's like the manifestation of the power of that place. And it's it's very cool. And it's really beautiful set. Really awesome. Like I really want to go there. <laughs> so, And it's in the middle of a forest.
0: <laughs> yeah, he describes himself as being the wind and the mountain.
1: That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, that was
0: almost my epic moment. So I'm so happy you mentioned that. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm glad. And as far as a rating goes, I'm gonna mimic Jack, and you were speaking what I was thinking, like almost exactly. I'm gonna say I'm gonna give this movie an 8 out of 10 magical chalk pieces. Epic. I agree. It's like in terms of art and like conveying strong messages and being, that was our kitty, uh, being. <laughs> <laughs> Being what it was intended to be, it is a 10 out of 10, but I have to give it the 8 out of 10 for similar reasons that Jack mentioned. Like, the scenes with violence are so graphic and brutal, like, I can't even watch them. Like, the first time I saw the movie, I saw it because I didn't know to look away. <laughs>
2: cool.
1: And Often the
2: case <laughs> with first watch.
1: And it kind of scars you. I can see that. It's it's particularly rough for me because I have a strong imagination and almost to the extent of perhaps hyperphantasia. So uh, it's very hard Weird for flex me. Weird <laughs> <laughs> And I, I hate torture. I hate it watching people being scared or hurt like that.
2: Yeah, so, we here at Swords and Satire are not fans of torture. No, just so it's clear. So you can take that to the bank.
1: I don't think, I just don't know if they needed to be as graphic as they were, and that's why I'm docking it a bit. So, I just think they could have, like, implied some of it, and uh, it would have been just as impactful. So, yeah, that's just my take. What about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment or feature and your rating from 1 to 10 magical chalk pieces?
2: Yes, Jamie, tell us, Jamie. Well, you know, I'm glad you guys asked. My epic moment is kind of a brutal one, but it's one that's stuck with me. But it is a brutal scene. And it happens right at the end, and it's always stuck with me, and it's a line of dialogue yes. that has stuck with me. Yes. Okay. And it's right at the very end of the movie, right after Captain Vidal has done the terrible thing that he ends the film by doing, and he's finally confronted face-to-face with the gorillas that he has been terrified of and fighting against and disparaging this whole movie. Mm -hmm. And it's basically when he realizes the jig is up. He's not going to make it out of this. There's no negotiating with them. He knows that his life is coming to an end.
1: He's alone and surrounded.
2: Right. So he takes out his watch.
1: Well, he's holding his infant child.
2: Sure. I was trying to emphasize the more important part. Oh, sorry.
1: Okay. I see. No,
2: yes. So he has his child. He passes the kid to the gorillas. Mercedes. Mercedes. She's one of the gorillas. Mm Mm-hmm. She is? I thought she was a fascist. (laughs) Mercedes? Yeah, no, but
0: no, she's a spy. That's right. That's right.
2: He passes the child. He pulls out his watch. He says, I want you to give my son this watch. And he kind of recounts the story of his own father, which he denied earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. And he's like, this way his father won't know. And Mercedes just cuts him off and says, no, your son won't even know your name. And then bang. Yeah. And that is the end of Captain Vidal. And ever since the first time I saw this movie, it has stuck with me. It is a powerful, if disturbing, end to this movie. It is like the last realism part of the movie before we get into the magical realism or fantasy of Ophelia's ascent back to her kingdom of the Feywild.
1: Yes. And part of the impact of that, I think, is in Vidal's face when Mercedes says that to him right before he is killed.
2: Yeah, the actor sells it.
1: He looks horrified. And like...
2: Our okay. kitten is playing with a bottle gas.
1: Yeah. And, like, that is the only thing that really, like, makes him terrified. He looks terrified.
2: Yeah, because it means his legacy will not live on. He is super concerned with lineage and legacy. He is, again, like, classically portrayed as this, like, quote-unquote powerful man who has to pass his legacy on to a son- very important to have a a strong patch line to him. Mm -hmm. And they are denying him that. He has been so concerned with having a son this whole movie and then they're telling him, no. He's not even going to know who you are. We're not going to tell him who his father was.
1: So his life has no meaning.
2: Exactly. But it's a great scene and it's a powerful bookend to this film. As far as ratings go... I am going to give this movie 9 out of 10 magical chalk pieces. Nice. Maybe even nine and a half because Ophelia breaks the chalk piece and has about a half of one <laughs> at the movie. I think this is nearly a perfect film. I believe I've seen this movie more times than any other film in my quote unquote adult life. As in like when I've sat down to watch the movie from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. When Jack was younger and we watched, like, Labyrinth all day, multiple times a day, I would, like, watch it while I was doing something else. But in terms of sitting down to watch a movie beginning to end, I'm pretty sure Pan's Labyrinth is the most I've done in the last 20 years. I saw it in the theater on release. We bought it, like, immediately and have rewatched it multiple times on disc.
1: Yeah. So many times that our disc is broken.
2: Yeah, our DVD is like going bad and we had to, after halfway through the movie for this watch, rent it (laughs) and watch the final half. Yeah. It's just so good. It tells its story so well. It uses imagery so well. It combines real world history with magical, fantastical moments in such a wonderful way.
1: Folklore and myth.
2: Yeah, it weaves together these ancient worldviews with this horrifying reality of war. Mm -hmm. I just think the movie does what it wants so masterfully, and Del Toro just can make a fucking movie, man.
1: Uh, Cool fact, this uh, movie was novelized in 2019... Really? Del Toro co-wrote it with another author. Holy shit. Yeah.
0: Inspired by the release of Cats 2019. Oh
1: my God.
0: (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) It's important. Important cultural. I don't know what it means, but it's important. (laughs) Okay.
2: Anyway, I think Pan's Labyrinth is one of the most outstanding films I've ever seen. It's left an impression on me. I remember it more vividly than other films, and I think that's significant. So nine and a half magical pieces of chalk. Wow. That's my final offer.
1: That's a good one.
2: Awesome. And hey, we'd like to thank you, as always, for joining us here at Swords & Satire. If you enjoyed the show, maybe consider hopping on the social media and following us at Swords & Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you do, you can check out the memes that we post. You can see what movies we're watching. And you can send me a message and, uh, you know, have a chat about your favorite fantasy movies.
1: And if you're a fan and you want to support the show and you like to know what happens ahead of time, you could go over to patreon.com slash swords and satire, become a patron and support the show today. And you could vote on movies that we watch each month. So you would have a say in some of the films we cover. And you would have access to exclusive art that we create, like our rewriting history movie pitch episodes and outtakes.
0: That's right. And my reference to Cats 2019 that I made this episode is likely going to be in one of those outtakes. So if you're not one of our patrons and you're curious about cats, head on over to our Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're a fan of Pan's Labyrinth or Cats 2019, and you don't have a few bucks to slide our direction to your favorite podcasters, why not go tell your friends and family about Swords and Satire and spread the word, so when our new episodes come out, you'll have people to talk to about it. There is no better way to enjoy your art than with a community.
1: Yeah, yeah. See.
2: Well, until next time. Hail, Hail Crumb. crumb! But like the spooky one.